Amazing. So I think we'll get started now. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing very, very well. My name is Reem Ibrahim. I am the, oh, my role here is I am the events coordinator. I'm also spokesperson at um, FOTBOT, the Friends of the British Overseas Territories. Um, I am absolutely delighted to invite you all today to our first ever um, news of the overseas territories, which is fantastic. We've got a rep from Montserrat, we've got somebody from St. Helena around the Chagos Islands. So hopefully we'll get a good mix of um, things that are going on at the moment. And this is the first time we've ever done a sort of news of the overseas territories style um, event. So I'm very excited to uh, invite you guys all here today. Um, it's really brilliant to sort of hear a lot about um, what's going on in the overseas territories. And as, as we all know, there is always so much that's going on, so much moving about and uh, so many different um, events that happen at the moment. So um, I'm going to give us a little introduction uh, for the next five minutes and then we'll move on to hearing from our very own Vice President Claude Hogan, who is from Montserrat. And uh, then we'll hear from the former Governor of St. Helena, Lisa Holmoby. And then we'll also hear from Rosie uh, Levesque, who is from the uh, British Indian Ocean Territories as well. Um, I'm just going to give us a little bit of an introduction. So obviously we know that we recently had the coronation. The coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla saw premiers, governors and other leaders from across the overseas territories come to our great city London, which is where I am now, uh, including people like Simon Young, the mayor of the Pitcairn and uh, James Glass, the chief islander of Tristan de Cunha. They gathered beforehand for a reception hosted by the Duke and the Duchess of Edinburgh and were also able to attend another reception alongside other Commonwealth leaders with His Majesty the King. The coronation also saw police officers from the overseas territories who came to London to help protect the procession route. They were hosted at a reception by common speaker for Lindsay Hoyle beforehand. On the day itself, the flags of the overseas territories featured in the procession. I'm sure we've all seen the photos. Uh, I think we had them on the uh, FOTBOT accounts as well, so you could have seen them. Uh, they were being carried by the British soldiers and they were also being flown in Parliament Square, uh, where they are actually still flying, if you want to go and have a look if you're around in London. Um, so we've also got the Joint Ministerial Council. So given the gathering of the OT leaders for the coronation, the UK government decided to actually hold the annual Joint Ministerial Council last week. The Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, announced that the UK would launch a new strategy for the overseas territories and also announced that each UK government department will now have an assigned minister responsible for working with the bots. Uh, in other news, last week, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, actually unveiled a new stained glass window in Parliament. For those of you that work in Parliament or have been around Parliament would have seen it, uh, which showed that the coats of arms of all of the overseas territories and the Crown dependencies, and that kind of symbolises the uh, great importance of the British family. Uh, we also got the House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee, who have recently announced an inquiry into the UK's relationship with the overseas territories and has recently visited Gibraltar to meet with uh, various politicians and other stakeholders over there. And uh, finally, there's a new aspect of the Darwin Plus scheme that has been announced. The Darwin Plus Strategic Fund will help support projects across the British Overseas Territories that seek to bolster, uh, so to bolder habitat recovery, monitor climate change and combat invasive species. The fund will run for three different years, granting up to three million pounds of funding. Just fantastic. So lots of new things going on in the British Overseas Territories. But now I'm going to hand over to our Vice President, Claude Hogan, who is from Montserrat. And he's going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Montserrat at the moment. So Claude, over to you. Thank you very much, Shreem. Thanks very much for the invitation. I'm very proud to be here, uh, not only as your Vice President, which I'm honored, really honored to be your Vice President, I'm very proud to be here as a Montserratian. Uh, Montserrat has a very proud history of being forever a British overseas territory. Uh, we had the opportunity 
in the 1950s when um, we had the Federation and a lot of countries shortly after once that had dismantled, we had the various opportunities to be talking about going independent. At one stage in the 1970s, we were told or we uh, agreed with the UK government that we were waiting for uh, economic stability uh, in order to then claim our rightful place in the so-called independent countries of the world. But um, that never transpired because monstrations um, led by great leaders like William H. Bramble, who met the Queen, John Osborne, who came to Buckingham Palace, and a gentleman I want to speak about, uh, Sir Howard Fergus, who you could say was the founding father of parliamentary democracy in Montserrat, and that um, introduction of parliamentary uh, reduction of parliamentary democracy in Montserrat uh, brought us that much closer to the United Kingdom as we modeled our life, our culture, our civility after the British system, not just the politics. So Howard Fergus was, you could say, the Renaissance man of Montserrat. Um, he was a sort of Renaissance man who, however, borrowed a lot from uh, the more advanced uh, civilizations at that time, which of course we were British. He came out of very humble beginnings. That's why he's so revered because he came out of a village called Longgown, where I'm from myself. Uh, we happen to be cousins. And, uh, but he, he would, as you would say, you know, born uh, gifted, intelligent, grasped concepts of sociology, society, law, history, and so on very quickly. And so, he was born around 90, in 1937, 22nd of July. Uh, my mother went to school with him and they said that he was you know, unrivaled in any of the subjects that he was introduced to in school, including English language, which he was like an Englishman who never lived in England, English literature. And he actually started teaching history in the Caribbean, in Montserrat and in the University of the West Indies, which, of which he became a professor. He started teaching a history of the Caribbean from a more of a Caribbean perspective. Um, when, when it started, he was described as a sellout because he had to uh, speak of the history in a sense of our interaction with the concepts and the, the fears and the, the the disasters and the, the injury and the hurt and the pain that was slavery and post-slavery uh, as well. Um, the, the fact that we, we had to continue to pay rent to the slave masters for continuing to having to inhabit the, the lands of the former slave owners and you had to give up three quarters of your, of your produce from agriculture to the, uh, the slave master. So, he had to bring us into contact with that kind of experience of our past. And it, it hurt so much that it required a lot of uh, uh, resilience as of now for people to come to grips with where we had come from. In fact, Fergus um, was born into one of the poorest families in Longong at the time. Obviously you could tell um, that he had to walk to school of some like, uh, 15 miles or so, and uh, he was supported by um, an aunt because his parents couldn't afford it. But he excelled so much that he got a Leeward Island scholarship, and um, he continued from there, studied in Manchester, studied here in the United Kingdom, went on to the University of the West Indies. So he was well-learned um, in modern languages and, and history and and the arts and culture. And he came back to the Caribbean and specifically more so Montserrat where he never left after he had you know, gained all that he gained. He studied abroad, he traveled a lot. He became a member of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association. So that's where he brought home a lot of what he learned on the, on the streets, in the 
meetings in his classroom. And so he's credited for starting the parliament in Montserrat. He was the first speaker, longest uh, serving speaker, in fact, in the entire Commonwealth. He served for 30 something years and actually went back uh, very briefly for a while to um, train up the first female um, speaker in Montserrat in 2009. He started uh, the whole concept of A-level teaching, A-level classes in Montserrat. He wanted to help those children who dropped out of school um, or who were not able to get into the grammar school because back in those days, you had to be born into a particular family to get into grammar school. He got into grammar school because he was so bright, let's put it that way, intelligent, that they decided to interview himself and his mother to see if he had the right uh, attitude, and right uh, sort of like upbringing to join the creme de creme in what was the grammar school at the time. So he was uh, an adopted um, grammar school boy. He was adopted from very humble beginnings. He had no rich, rich legacy. And so his parents and, and the whole village had to help to support him to keep up with being educated among the Joneses, you know, the people of, 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 of wealth. And it's remarkable that he became the first speaker. And then he also acted as governor for most of that time when the governor we never had any deputy governor in those days and he was the governor and basically he advised all of the governors up to 2009 and uh you had a sense of autonomy that developed politically and economically for Montserrat before the volcano struck in in 1995 because he was able to use politicians he was able to use his poetry and his charm, and he had the ability to invite, interact, and create opportunities for the rich and the famous of UK fame to come and live on Montserrat, like Sir George Martin had a house there upon, even until recently. I think he has gifted it to the government of Montserrat. His, his home, one of his ho homes is a, is a hotel restaurant now and serve the country very well after the, um, the crisis, because it's in the safe zone. Sir George and Sting and Elton John, Stevie Wonder, a lot of these guys teamed up across the Atlantic and they came to Montserrat and they had they built something called Air Studios, where Hot 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 was made and where Eric Clapton produced the song, I don't know where I'm gonna go, when the volcano blew and the volcano did blow. And um, Eric Clapton was right. We didn't know where we were going to go. So we were flung all over the Caribbean. And eventually, um, we were given safe haven here in the UK. So about 90% of the Montserrat population um, have been evacuated from the island or <clears throat> sought refuge somewhere else. And most of them are here now in the UK, having been um, um, given the safe haven to come here after going through a number of other programs um, of temporary resettlement, but it's rather challenging. Fergus was at the center of all of that as an advisor to the administrators or governors, the, the DFID folks that we sent out there. He uh, was governor when they conceptualized the Caricom village, uh, a village which sits alongside and another 50 houses we call the EU village, which was inspired by his presentation to the United Kingdom um, to assist Montserrat to build a number of homes, even at the height of the crisis, so that the Montserratians could feel that they could continue to live on Montserrat in a sense of peace and security. So that started um, a whole village of 50 houses sponsored by the European Union and the British brought in a number of other houses. I think they're called uh, Force 10 from Australia that they paid for, which were able to be erected quickly. So that started the, 
the reemergence of, of civilization and Manset after the destruction of the towns and villages of Manset. So Fergus was there from childhood till his death um, in March this year. And uh, he has been knighted. He's officer of the Order of the British Empire. He's also uh, upgraded to commander of the CBE in the 1995 honors. So the first honors were in 79. He, uh, he got his knighthood in, I think it's 2001 when he was knighted. And from Montserrat itself, he got what is called the Order of Excellence from the government of Montserrat. He's, he's not only former speaker, but he wrote a lot of books and his books basically um, praised and uplifted the island and all of its heroes like Kojo of Kojo Head fame who resisted the slavery. And he wrote about uh, St. Patrick's Day, but he actually encouraged Montserrat to produce what was called a hero's day out of it because on St. Patrick's Day, um, the slaves planned to an uprising to overthrow the slave masters, but that was leaked and it was put down and people were maimed and hung and, uh, and deported from the island. But he made, made it a story and a poetry and a song and, and many plays of it and, and wrote it in his book, History of a Caribbean Colony, which is one of the most revered texts in the Caribbean with copious texts with primary sources, chapters on settlement, sugar, slavery, emancipation, cotton and limes, which we exported. And of course, his whole lovely area of education, arts and culture. So all of Montserrat grew up around basically the Howard Fergus view of the worldview and, and, and how he used the education system provided by, financed by the UK government after some while. But for the most part, he would say he used the University of the West Indies itself to champion the education, enlightenment, and building of, of, of the civil society that we now know in Montserrat. And I think it's gonna be impossible for Montserratians to be anything but British in the future. So that is the life of and times of Sir Harold Fergus. I would describe it as such in this current time as um, having, he has become of age. We, we were not looking at it as as seriously or as earnestly as he was. And on reflection, he did say that this is what he set out in his whole life to do, which was to bring um, Montserrat to the attention of the world and to make it into an entity that we could be proud of. And we are proud of it and proud of him. That's wonderful, Claude. And it sounds as though he, um, you know, he, me he meant a lot to so many different people in Montserrat, but also that, uh, this, I mean, I mean, his impact was clearly, um, I mean, twofold. It's sort of in the in the political sphere and, the, and and in his role as governor, but also in that you know sort of emotional element is that as well, um, which is wonderful. Um, thank you so much for that, Claude. That was a really great summary, and um, I know that it, I think it's you know fascinating for all of us to hear the. Um, role that Sir Howard Fergus had, but also um, the sort of impact that um, that sort of what he meant to the people of Montserrat as well. Um, thank you. Um, I'm now going to move on to um, hearing from Lisa. Um, Lisa uh, Honan OBE from St. Helena. Um, she uh, was a former governor of St. Helena, so we can hear all about that. So over to you, Lisa. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here this evening. Uh, I do like to think I am a friend of the British Overseas Territories. And actually, as I was listening there to Claude speaking, it reminded me that really too many years ago, and I care to uh, say, I worked, well, I worked my whole career for DFID. I actually worked out of Barbados for a couple of years. And those um, artists that Claude was talking about that went to the studios, I remember them coming through Barbados 
to go to Montserrat and it was always very, very exciting. And we'd hear stories of what George Martin was up to. And actually, I think um, the Stones used to go there quite often as well. But fast forward to uh, 2016 was when I was appointed the governor of St Helena Ascension and Tristan de Cunha. And I was governor there for three years. Uh, from there, I went on to Nepal um, for a couple of years. And then I actually left. So by this time, David had merged with uh, the Foreign Office as we are now the uh, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And from Nepal, I left. So I just wanted to um, kind of give a bit of a sense of what, what I went on to do and how I think that I'm still a friend of the British Overseas Territories. So um, last year, I qualified as a City of London Guide. It was quite a uh, um, difficult assessment, but luckily managed to get through. And then I thought, right, what shall I do? I wanted to do guiding in the city, but I, want, I didn't want to do the standard uh, tours, if you like. I didn't want to do uh, Dickens and Shakespeare. So I decided to do... <coughs> a tour about the East India Company. And that contact and that interest really goes back to St Helena because the East India Company um, ruled the island, owned the island for 200 years from the middle of 1600s when the East India Company was looking for a stop on its route from London round to India and to, as we now know, to Indonesia. They needed somewhere to stop and refuel and the ships needed to take on water and vegetables and sheep and goats to keep, keep them going. And that's really where my interest in the East India Company um, started. Unfortunately, though, I didn't spend enough, I now know I didn't spend enough time down in the archives on the island. <laughs> um, that's probably because I was quite busy doing my day job. And I really regret that I uh, didn't spend enough time. Having said that, the British Library are actually digitising all the archives on St Helena as part of their Endangered Archives project. And I think it won't be very long. They've already published some. I don't think it'll be very long before we can actually just access them on our laptops. So I... Um, on St Helena, the links that I actually had with the East India Company, which, as I say, I should have paid more attention to, was I lived in uh, the house which was built by the East India Company for its governors. It was built in 1792. And um, I used to even do tours of the house uh, for if we had passing ships, cruise ships, and there was a big group, then uh, we would split up the tours and I would do tours of the house. And that's kind of how I got, got to know that uh, tour guiding was something that I quite enjoyed. Um, so I lived in the house. Uh, I often would read some of the books in the library which, and the library was built by a previous governor called Sir Hudson Lowe. Uh, he was the governor that guarded Napoleon when Napoleon was exiled on St Helena. Um, they didn't like one another. Uh, so this is 1815 to 1821. Um, 
they didn't like one another and in those six years they actually only met six times uh, Napoleon said the only thing that he did like about the island which wasn't much was the coffee <laughs> uh, but anyway um, and then you know it was really all those kind of links that then made me think about doing a tour and I know that probably some of the people on this call might have come on the tour that I did for some of your members uh, about a month or so back. Philip certainly came. Um, because on that tour, I do talk about St Helena quite a lot and the history that um, is with the East India Company. So, for example, we go to St Helen's Bishop's Gate Church, which is the biggest church in the city of London. And um, I talk about the founders that are buried in there. But of course, St Helen's Bishop's Gate is named after St Helena. And St Helena the Island was discovered on St Helena's Day, her saint day. She was the mother of King Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor. So we visit that church um, and we find some of the founders of the East India Company in that church. There are six of them and they've got some fabulous funeral monuments in there, which we go in and find. And I talk about how uh, the East India Company, uh, when it was uh, uh, operating out of St Helena, a thousand ships a year used to call there. So it was a really, really busy time during that time um, between about 1650 until uh, kind of 1850 or so when the, the island was given back to the crown. And then I, um, we also move on to, there's a, a, a sculpture in the city in Fen Court, and that is um, a sculpture that uh, recognises the 200th anniversary of the abolition of slavery. And so it's there that I talk about slavery and St Helena um, and how the perceived uh, wisdom, which just means if you type uh, East India Company and slavery into Google, it will tell you that the East India Company's first involvement in slavery was 1684. But I know from my time on the island that actually it predates that. So when the island was taken over in 1654, on the first two ships that the company sent to St Helena, there were slaves on those ships. So there's an awful lot, I think, that is still to come out about slavery in the East India Company. And I think that these digitised records um, that the British Library are going to do of the archives on St Helena will actually fill a lot of that gap. So that's really exciting. Um, and then the reason I do these tours is obviously people want to know about the East India Company. And I think it's not well known in this country, the, the story. And certainly it's not taught in schools. Empire and the East India Company is only optional on the curriculum. And my sense is that many teachers don't opt in. And that's why I'm thinking that I, I will probably offer my tour for schools actually, or history classes. Um, and so the reason I do it is to tell the story, but also to give some publicity for St Helena. And what I'm finding is a lot of people 
come on, on the tour. They're very interested in the island anyway. But I sometimes get people who have links to the island. Um, and what I do is, so they've, they've been or they have genealogical links um, or they know they knew someone who was a saint in, in the UK. So I have a Facebook page where most of the people on the island actually follow me. And uh, I post a picture. And uh, before very long, we tracked down uh, where that person's gone. So I did a tour yesterday and I had someone that had visited St Helena in 2010. And he said that on the ship he made great friends with a couple of people from the island. Uh, he gave me their picture. I posted it on the Facebook page. And sure enough, we found them really, really quickly, which is, I love it when that happens. It's, it's just uh, so interesting that St Helena is just really held in such fondness by people that have been there. So um, that's, that's my tour and that's almost the reasons I do it. I'm really, really enjoying it. And if anyone on this call would like to come along, I do my tours for London Walks. So that they're a big tour company here. You just Google and I'm on London Walks and I've got a couple of tours each month. It's always the same one. I, I can't do any more than just the one. Uh, <laughs> um, but now and again, I will do. They're quite big groups. And now and again, I will do a smaller group and I advertise those on Eventbrite and Airbnb experiences. But anyone can just drop me an email and I'll sort something out. That's but fantastic. Thank you for inviting me. That's all right. Lisa, do you mind telling me what's your email? So I, I, I'd absolutely love to join. So do let us know how we can sign up if, if we'd like to go. Yeah, okay. And actually, I'm on Twitter, Lisa Honan07. And that also has my email address on it, which is uh, lisahonan58 at gmail.com. So you can reach me in lots of ways. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a follow on Twitter. I am also on Twitter. I'll send you a follow. Okay. <laughs> really, okay. amazing. And we've also got another question from um, Oliver Wilderspin who asked, uh, Philip and I are visiting St. Helena in August. What are the top places to visit? Well, you must go, of course, to Plantation House, which is where the governors live. And you'll find the oldest land animal in the world in the front garden. His name is Jonathan, and he is a tortoise. And it was always, always a governor's worst nightmare that he would die while you're, while you're governor. Luckily, he out, he's outlived me, so that's fine. Um, but he's, he's just so lovely, this tortoise, and you can go and meet him. And then I would say um, go up to Diana's Peak, which is uh, a cloud forest. St Helena has everything between cloud forest and, a, and desert and everything in between. But the cloud, cloud forest is particularly beautiful. It's got lots of endemics as well. And then Napoleon's house, of course, Longwood, lots and lots of history there. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm sure we'll have more questions about uh, about the walking tour as well afterwards. And we'll, we'll save that for the question, uh, for the time allocated for those questions. Thank you, Lisa. That was really wonderful. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty convinced to, to join the walking tour. <laughs> Sounds like it would be great. Uh, amazing. So I'm now going to move on to uh, the wonderful Rosie Levesque, who is from the British Indian Overseas Territories. Um, she's going to tell us a little bit about uh, the Chagos Islands and um, sort of what's going on at the moment. Uh, there's obviously lots going on, so I'm sure Rosie can fill us all in. So uh, over to you, Rosie. Thank you. And thank you guys for inviting me today and organising the webinar. Um, <laughs> so where do we start? So. November last year, 
Um, the Foreign Office announced that the UK government and the Mauritius government uh, were starting bilateral negotiations on the future sovereignty of the Chagos Islands or the British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, it all came as a bit of a surprise. Nobody was informed. It just sort of popped out as a public statement. And there were numerous attempts made by various different Chagossian groups to try to be included, involved, consulted in regards to the future of the islands. Um, after all of the strong, <laughs> I guess, strong campaigning and forceful um, conversations that we had with members of the FCDO and UK government, we had a meeting or what they called an engagement event um, with the BIOT administration on Teams on the 9th of February this year. And it sort of, <laughs> it wasn't too positive and not too productive. It sort of was an hour and 15 minutes of 11 different Chagossian groups who are based all over the world from sort of UK, Mauritius, Seychelles, all giving their opinions and their views and essentially all the same message was coming out of, you know, you need to speak with the Chagossian people, it can't be two governments deciding the future of the territories without actually consulting the people, the natives and the descendants. And it ended with the meeting, um, what it ended with sort of everyone had three minutes to speak. There was no time for questions at the end. No questions were actually answered. And it ended with saying, you know, there will be no, um, there will be no involvement in terms of like the people themselves getting involved, the Shagossian people themselves being involved in the future of the territories. There will be no referendum, there will be no right to self-determination, and essentially these two governments will keep making decisions for the future of the people for the foreseeable future. Um, there have been a judicial review that's been launched by one of the Shagossian groups in the UK in an attempt to essentially stop the negotiations, but I don't think we'll sort of see anything from that for the next few months. Recently, we have received another invitation for another engagement event by the Foreign Office, which will be taking place this Thursday. And after some complaints of the last meeting not being as productive as what we thought it would be, I guess they're attempting to redo it again and sort of you know be inclusive of everyone's views and move forward in a productive way but you know many groups many Chagossian groups have also reached out to the Mauritius government and I guess same as always the Chagossian people falls on deaf ears. <laughs> that seems to be the case and Rosie I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about um, the history of what you know actually what's going on why why is uh, why are the, uh, the British Indian Ocean territories even contested in the first place? Um, what's going on? What is you know Mauritius' claim to land? Mauritius' claim to the land, and um, what kind of um, arguments are there on both sides? And what kind of what, where where is this? Um, where do you think the negotiations will actually end up going? Well, right now it's sort of the big issue of you know there's like I think. 86 different islands that makes up the British Indian Overseas Territories. And the main island, Diego Garcia, which is the biggest one, is the one that houses the US military base. And what we've heard from the negotiations is that the UK and the US will continue on with their military joint US-UK base. But does that mean that Biot will then be split up into you know, just Diego Garcia being the military base and then the rest of the islands will sort of go back to being dependencies of Mauritius. You know, there's there's so many sort of unanswered questions and I'm not even too sure if those two governments have the answers for us right now because it seems to be that everything keeps being delayed, keeps being sort of pushed back. But 
yeah, I mean, all we can do is sort of keep campaigning and keep trying to make our voices heard, but it sort of feels like no matter how many interviews you get and no matter how much noise you make about it in the media, you know, yeah. And I guess, I mean, that's kind of why we want to hear from you today, Rosie, so that you can kind of, I guess, you know, give us your perspective and let us know what's going on and what needs to be done and what what you believe um, you want and also what you believe that other, other descendants of the islands also want themselves as well. And can you just tell us a little bit about, for those of us that aren't aware of what actually happened historically, why these why these islands are actually contested in the first place? Yeah, so I mean, a little bit of history on the Chagos Islands is in the 60s and the 70s, um, the UK government, Mauritius government and the US government all um, decided that they wanted to <laughs> essentially build a US military base on one of the big islands that form part of the Chagos Islands, which was Diego Garcia. The UK and US wanted it as a joint military base. At the time, there were about 1,500 to 2,000 native Chagossian people living on those islands and had been for about six or seven generations. And the US essentially said that they wanted the islands emptied. So they wanted to get rid of the people there, the natives, the children, their families, their dogs, the pets. Um, so they were all exiled to Mauritius and to the Seychelles, which meant that you had families, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, who were all separated. Some of them were uh, deported to Seychelles, others deported to Mauritius. And yeah, essentially the island sort of became part of the <laughs> British family of the OTC, Biot. And over the last sort of 50 to 70 years, Mauritius has been trying to claim the islands back. Um, we see it as mainly sort of financial gain. Um, we've seen it happen with the islands of Agalega, which is another dependency of Mauritius where Mauritius sold Agalega to the Indian army for, I think it was like $280 billion. So the majority of the Chagossian people see Mauritius wanting sovereignty back as just them wanting sort of the financial gains. And we've seen over the years that, you know, the Mauritius government does not really care about the interest or the welfare of the Chagossian people. And the majority of the Chagossian people right now, especially with the new citizenship bill that launched last year, are all sort of moving to the UK for just, you know, better future, better opportunities, better everything sort of for their kids and for, yeah, parity mm -hmm. of, their, of, their, of their lives. So, yeah, I guess the big sort of ask and demand from the Chagossian people is that you know, we want to be heard by these governments, we want to be included, and we don't want history to repeat itself again where two governments make the decision for an entire population. And we want the right to self-determination like the other BOTCs, and we also want a right to a referendum so we can choose whether we wish to remain British or remain, or be under the sovereignty of Mauritius, essentially. Thank you very much. The right to choose. <laughs> well, yeah, the right to choose. I think that gives us a lot of clarity. Um, as a libertarian, I'm quite pro the right to choose. So uh, thank you for that. And I will now move on to um, sort of the questions and we'll you know, open up for everybody to ask questions to anybody that spoke today. So that's um, Claude, Rosie and Lisa, you can ask questions too. Um, and then we'll, we'll move on to hearing from our chief executive, um, Philip Smith. So I'll start off with actually Philip's question. Uh, and this is a question to Rosie. Um, there have been concerns around Chinese influence in Mauritius. Does Rosie share this concern? Absolutely. <laughs> so that's actually interesting. Um, the Chagos APPG, oh gosh, I think it was about two years ago that I tried to reach out to the coordinator, David Snoxall, 
who used to be the Mauritius, uh, the British High Commissioner in Mauritius. And he's now the sort of coordinator for the Chagos APPG in UK Parliament. And I sent him like this proposal, essentially saying, you know, this is why we should be given the right to choose and the right to, ref to a referendum um, because of sort of the Chinese influence on the area in terms of like the Indian Ocean. I mean, I did a lot of research on it and it seemed like that was a possibility. So once again, it sort of feels like Mauritius already has those allies in the Indian Ocean and they're fully aware that, you know, they could potentially make a huge financial gain from the highest bidder who we believe could be China. <laughs> That's fascinating. And Robert also asked for Rosie. I, I suspect a lot of these questions will go, will direct, be directed to Rosie as a result of the uh, ongoing negotiations. Um, but Robert literally asks, uh, for Rosie, how do you feel about Mauritius actually claiming the islands? I remember seeing a photo, I think it was last year, um, where they had actually put planted the Mauritius, uh, uh, the Mauritian flag as well. So how do you actually feel about the, you know, them the actually claiming that the islands are theirs? So Personally, I don't believe that Mauritius has a right to claim that the islands are theirs. Um, the whole stunt of sort of a small delegation of Chagossian people from Mauritius alongside the Mauritius government about last year, I think it was February last year, 2022, um, went and planted the Mauritian flag on one of the islands of Biot. And the whole purpose they claimed was for a scientific research to I think it was like a case going on between the Maldives and Mauritius and figuring out who owns what part of the Chagos reefs um but yeah no I mean it was a huge sort of political stunt um at the end of the day you know I keep sort of repeating this but the Chagosian people should have a right to express themselves and choose their futures um, and I think if the UK government and if the FCDO claim that the British Indian Ocean is part of the BOTCs, then we should be given the same rights as all of the other BOTCs, which is a right to choose and respect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here we go on about um, how important self-determination is. It's actually why I became interested in the uh, British Overseas Territories in the first place. So uh, I think you make a, a, a very uh, coherent argument there, Rosie. So thank you. Um, also for Rosie, Mark Seddon asks, um, does the Czechoslovakian diaspora actually have a unified position on the future of the islands? I mean, um, I think sort of looking at originally what the government said, they promised that negotiations would be concluded by March. Um, obviously, that hasn't um, necessarily been the case. Um, and, you know, do all descendants have a unified position on, on the issue or, 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 or is there some disagreement? So, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> I think because the diaspora is just sort of all over the world, you do have a diverse set of opinions. But, I mean, I don't see it as sort of a negative. I mean, you have sort of the group in Mauritius who works with the Mauritius government, takes a paycheck from the Mauritius government, and so therefore they are very pro-Mauritius. And you have the people, now a very large community of Chagossians, about, I think, 4,000 people living in the UK, who, you know, they came here to build a better future for their children, for their grandchildren, and improve their lives. And so to them, you know, being part of the British family is a better option. And then you have people in the Seychelles who are sort of, I guess, a little split between both. But then again, the Mauritius government has claimed that Chagossians in Seychelles are not actually Chagossians and they do not take any sort of responsibility for them whatsoever. So yes, there is, there is a diverse range of opinions. And you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I think in the UK government, you have what, like 
50 different political parties so you know <laughs> diversity is good <laughs> that's true diversity of thought is good it's the the marketplace of ideas and also um you know i mean within those parties you get different perspectives on what on what the future of the country looks like so you're absolutely right rosie there are always different um different perspectives on every issue as well and um, we've got a question from oliver wilderspin for um lisa as governor, did you get many opportunities to visit the other islands under your jurisdiction? So Ascension and Tristan de Kuna. Yes, certainly. And I was always really clear that I was the governor for all three. Um, they were one territory. I happened to live on St Helena, um, but I was governor for all three. And in fact, I visited Tristan before I even visited St Helena, because I was on the, what we thought was going to be the last voyage of the RMS St Helena. And it first of all called into Tristan, and then it went to St Helena after that, and that was my arrival on St Helena. Uh, Tristan, fascinating place, 250 people there, um, the scariest bit was climbing down the rope ladder of the RMS to be <laughs> uh, into a very small rib in the middle of the sea. But uh, I went to Tristan twice, and actually the next time I did that, it was much, much better. And then Ascension, I visited more times than I visited Tristan, because, uh, you know, it was there's no regular ship at all to... Tristan and um, I would often visit Ascension to fly from there to the UK Enterprise Norton and of course a very very recent update is that the runway on Ascension is now open which is great news because that actually closed during my time because it the runway broke up a lot and was then unsafe for landing so I'm really really pleased to see that the runway is now operational again. That's wonderful, fantastic. And we've got another question for um, Claude, the Honourable Claude. What does he think of the JMC outcome from last week? Do you think it's positive steps or do you think that there's more work to do? And um, do you think that Lord Goldsmith is actually making a difference as uh, Overseas Territories Minister? Well, both, both are correct. There were positive steps and there's more work to be done. Um, what we want, however, uh, perhaps what could be complained about is a uh, lack of coherency in that there are parliamentary activities, which seems to be that the minister is running ahead of the of the of the research and the outcomes of that. I suspect. Those are political imperatives because the politicians want uh, <clears throat> greater, want to see action immediately. So that could be a good thing, but I hope that we, we get to a point where we have uh, some coherent policy direction on the overseas territories. For one, uh, I think the, the uh, constitutions are a bit anachronistic in that, um, they're saying that a British governor in, say, Montreal has no accountability if funds are misused under um, a particular ministry that falls under that governor. And then they're saying at the same time that the overseas territories are autonomous and should account for the British taxpayers' monies over there. So we have some, some problems like maybe putting the cart before the horse issues, and there are also some issues with, um, I think, coordinating now below the ministerial oversight level, the kind of inputs that we hope will assist the territories. Otherwise, it could turn out to be you know, window dressing. 
Fantastic, thank you. And uh, a question from Raphael uh, for Rosie. What, in your opinion, is a solution to the issue at hand with regards to the involvement of the Chagossians in the negotiations? How much involvement do you feel that um, would actually ensure the Chagossians feel included? And um, obviously, as you said, they are a diaspora. It's quite difficult to gauge who should be involved in the negotiations, who you think actually um, you know, should be involved. How do you think that would actually look you know, in, in, in practical terms? Um, I mean, in terms of what we want, so we we want a referendum. <laughs> we want a referendum and a right to self-determination as a people. Um, in terms of like the diaspora being all over the world, yes. Um, the, the thing is like there's there's already been some work that's starting to be done on that front in terms of gathering up the data of who's the natives, where do they live, who's the descendants, where are they based. Um, some of that work has already been done with the nationality bill, which gave the right to British overseas territory citizenship and British citizenship to all Chagossians and their descendants. So the Foreign Office already has all of that information. Up to date, since November 23rd, 2022, there's been over 5,000 applications that have come through. And we thought there are only like 10,000 Chagossians worldwide. So within like seven to eight months, 5,000 has been gathered within the next year we might have all of them. <laughs> I mean, obviously you won't get all of them, but you know, that's the best attempt that we have in terms of locating them and having contact information for them, email addresses, telephones, actual postal addresses. So it's doable. If these governments wanted to give us an opportunity to choose our future, the data is there. Yeah, it does sound as though the argument around there, uh, around obviously people being a diaspora is kind of used as an excuse to say that it's too difficult to involve them in the negotiations in the first place. Um, it's clearly possible and we live in 2023. There are ways to contact these people. Um, we've got a question from Robert Midgley. Uh, for Lisa, what's the relationship like at Ascension between the UK and the US? And is it true that the airstrip was originally built by the US for NASA? Um, so the airstrip <clears throat> was built as an alternative landing um, site for the space shuttle. Uh, I don't think it was ever used for that, but that, but as I understand it, that's what uh, the US interest was. The relationship between the US and the UK that I observed was always really, really close, actually, and very cooperative. Um, I mean, just related to uh, some of something to do with NASA anyway. Uh, that some years ago, apparently, if you've ever visited Ascension, there's lots of bits of kit and equipment on it. So it might, you know, you've got monitoring earthquakes, you've got monitoring this, that and the other, and it all belongs to different bodies, this kit. And they once apparently... <laughs> tried to identify who everything belonged to. And there was one piece that they couldn't, that one piece of equipment on the island and they couldn't work out who it belonged to. So I don't know if they ever did. But the, the, no, the relations between the US and the UK are very cooperative. A lot of the operations at the airport are shared, very close relations, definitely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much to everybody who asked the questions. And thank you to our wonderful uh, speakers today as well. We had the Admiral Claude Hogan, we had um, Rosie Levesque, and we also had the wonderful Lisa Honan as well. Thank you. I'm now going to hand over to our Chief Executive Officer, Philip Smith, who is going to give us a bit of a charity summary as well. So uh, over to you, Philip. <laughs> Oh, sorry, Philip, your audio is a bit um, off. I can't quite hear you. Do you mind just re... I don't know if you've got earphones in or re-plug it. 
Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. So what happened there? Well, yeah, I just want to. Yeah, it's still okay, Reem. Um, yeah, thank you all very much to our Parliament. 
um, and they will be attending and running uh, one, uh, market stands. We've also got the Friends of Hamilton attending. So uh, two big events coming up uh, end of June with our vice president. Uh, come along, have a drink, get involved in football. Then in July, we've got our summer barbecue where we're hosting several other charities and raising the profile of the overseas territories. Um, I think I will wrap it up there, Reem. I hope I've, if there's anything I've missed. Um, and then, of course, save the date on the 30th of November, the events team led by Raphael with, uh, with Reem, uh, Will and um, Richie Hardcastle um, and Alexandra Williams, team four, um, will be delivering the uh, Black Tie Gala dinner which will be held at Camters Hall. We have books, um, Lord Bellingham, a former minister for the overseas territories, will be addressing footballs on the 30th of November. So, yeah, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna shut up now, me. <laughs> um, but any, happy to take any questions or if anyone has anything they want to ask, but otherwise, uh, thank you very much for this evening. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Phil. That was fantastic. That was Philip Smith, our Chief Executive Officer. I will also add, um, I believe it's on the 18th of July this year, we've got our um, barbecue um, in London. So please do uh, join if you are around in London. It was a huge success last year. Unfortunately, um, Philip and Oliver were, were stuck in, where, was, where were you stuck? In Edinburgh, because they went to the Faroe Islands on official footbot duty, which is disgraceful. But hopefully they'll be there this year. You sound bitter by that, Reem. Is it because the family was a Danish overseas Oh, it's time. just because I had to feed like 50 people alone. But it was fine. I, I managed it. It was good. Um, but anybody that's around in London uh, this summer, please do join. It was a, it was a huge success um, last year. Uh, oh, so I should, sorry, I did forget. I must mention this, otherwise uh, Gus will, will, will tell me off. This coming Sunday, we've got a tour of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. So if anyone is available, uh, tickets are £20. The tour's at one o'clock. Um, and yeah. That's great. Thank you, Phil. That's wonderful. Um, I'll close off in a minute, but I just want to say um, a few words about uh, what we've had today. So um, what I will say is that I, I love I think that this kind of style of, of sort of news round goes really goes, uh, works really well because um, you know, the British Overseas Territories really are paramount to the British family. And um, I'm a history student. No student of history, you know, could cease to be amazed by the stories which tell um, how, how our unique overseas territories have each uh, been able to form such a crucial part of the nation's history. So it has been so fantastic to hear from um, all of you today, from uh, Claude Hogan, Rosie Levesque, and from Lisa Honan. Thank you so much for, um, you know, speaking to us about the um you know the principle of self-determination but also about how you know the, the culture and how important that is um to us today so thank you so much i'm sure that all of us have really enjoyed it and thank you to everybody who asked questions as well uh, that was really brilliant if you want to get in touch with any of us send us an email um my email is reem.ibrahim at popbot.org so um feel free to send us an email thank you everyone and have a lovely evening or whatever time it is where you are